Well, hello everyone, and welcome to episode 149 of The Cool Room. Uh, it's your host, David Griffiths, here today uh, with just a quick couple of notes before we get underway with our discussion with Yuli's Brews. Uh, a really great discussion ranging across a whole range of breweries, particularly up in New South Wales. Uh, I'm flying solo today without Warren or Travis, so you'll hear plenty of my voice. So just a couple of quick notes. First of all, if it's your first time listening to the podcast, thank you for finding us. Uh, make sure you check out our Shopify store where all of the beers that we chat about are there. The exception being uh, today, because we're sold out of Yulies already, but I'm sure you can grab them online and uh, make the most of the opportunity to listen to the beers uh, being discussed while you're tasting them. Make sure you don't miss out on our great beers that we have coming up in October. We've got Bamberg's uh, famous Schlenkeler Brewery joining us. That's going to be fantastic. We're also going to have Slow Lane, Burnley, and many, many more. So check out the shop, grab those beers to support the podcast, and gather around with your ears tuned for some great discussions about German-style beers coming up in October. In the meantime, let's get underway with our discussion with the gang from Yulies. Well, hello and welcome to episode 149 of The Cool Room. Unbelievable that we've had that many episodes and so looking forward to our 150th this Sunday, presuming I can edit this fast enough, at Bonehead Brewing in Kensington from two o'clock. Come down and join us. We're really looking forward to supporting one of the breweries that has supported us so well for so long. Uh, get around it and come down and be part of that. Uh, make sure you're on board next week when we have Deep Creek joining us live from New Zealand. And then we head into Oktoberfest. And not only do we have the Weinstefan packs, which are flying out the door, welcome to all the new listeners that are getting on board the cool room as they discover the Weinstefan packs. I am so, so, so excited to have Schlenkeler joining us live from Bamberg uh, for our Oktoberfest, or at least our German Beer Month in October. They're going to be fantastic. The first brewery that I ever visited outside of Australia. Uh, really hoping we're going to have a couple of special guest brewers on board as part of our interviews with them. We've locked in Burnley Brewing to be part of October, 10 German-themed beers from them, and we've locked in Slow Lane again from Sydney, uh, fantastic brewers who make some great German-style beers as well. All of those things to look forward to, uh, and just just so happy and excited that we've got them on board for what's going to be a massive month for us. Uh, but before we get to any of that, we've got to deal with episode 149. Thank you to everyone who's bought the packs in our Shopify. Thank you to everyone who's joining us live in Zoom. And particularly a big thank you to Tom Davies, who used to be the head brewer at uh, Yulies and now has been demoted to operate. No, no, not demoted to operations manager. I'm not trying to cause trouble, Tom. <laughs> operations manager, mate. What does an operation manager do? Hey, David. Thanks. Uh, an operations manager. It's a hard uh, title to describe sometimes, but um, uh, a lot of kind of things from production planning to logistics to sales and a little bit of everything in between. So um, I've, I've been with Yulis for 
kind of ever since we built the brewery and um i think just yeah the, the more i've gotten into it the less i know what i do on a day-to-day basis <laughs> it sounds like everything i've ever been involved in and um you know so i totally understand where you're coming from how big's the team there i guess might sort of help to explain why you need an operations manager because i'm guessing at the beginning of the brewery you sort of didn't have job titles like that kicking around no, no, I think, uh, so the team uh, in the actual brewery, we're still a pretty small team. Um, so we've got uh, seven of us down in the brewery, um, kind of working on the floor and in packaging and things like that. Um, but probably if you look at the team of Yuli's Brews as a, a whole, including our hospitality staff, and, and we've got a few restaurants as well. Uh, we just had a staff party up in Byron Bay and had over 80 people there. So it's a pretty big um, kind of business, particularly around hospitality side of things um but uh yeah the brewery team and, and the brewers we're, we're pretty small but pretty efficient now you've you've done a really nice little segue for me there what we'd love to have at the beginning of our podcasts uh particularly for our overseas listeners a shout out to our friends in norway as ever heinrich you know if you're over there having a listen uh all of our new friends in india as well um lots of people won't be familiar with where yulis is even though plenty of people from new south wales in particular australia will be can you tell us a little bit about where the brewery is and when it started and uh, where it started i should say and also all of those other sort of spaces that you've got because you've really sort of expanded into that hospo side of things yeah, I guess uh, Yuli's Brews actually started out of a hospitality business. Um, so we, we have a restaurant called Yuli's uh, that's based in Surrey Hills, um, and it's a vegetarian restaurant. And it was opened uh, almost 15 years ago now. Um, and so it was basically, a, a, at the time, a go at basically doing vegetarian food. Um, and at the time, kind of boutique beer, you know, it was, it was really before the word craft was being used. Um, so you could go into Yuli's and you could get a vegetarian meal. And they had eight to 10 taps of kind of particularly for breweries in New South Wales, um, you know, beers that were kind of very early on, Happy Goblin and and a lot, quite a few breweries that now no longer exist, actually. But um, so we started off in Surrey Hills. Um, so and, and explain to us where Surrey Hills is, because again, sorry, that's sort of what... From, yep. So we're based in Sydney. Um, so our brewery's in Alexandria. Um, so Surrey Hills is kind of right, really close, you know, within a kilometre of the city, um, the city of Sydney, and, and really kind of a thriving hub of kind of food and drink and um, a pretty kind of interesting Crown Street's where the restaurant is. So um, that's kind of where it started out. And we built the brewery uh, in 2017. Um, and the brewery's actually located in Alexandria, which is just a bit closer down to Sydney Airport. Um, we're actually on the beautiful uh, Cook's Canal, uh, which is not a very beautiful canal at all. It's uh, kind of a wastewater stream through Sydney, but uh, we're, we're right down kind of on Burroughs Road. So if you're going to kind of the local tip or the local <laughs> metal scrapyard for basically all of kind of inner Sydney building, we're on the same road as uh, kind of all of that. So in a pretty industrial area. Um, you, you've but... really built up one of the two venues quite well so far. Perhaps the other one, not so much. <laughs> yeah, I think, look, uh, you know, any industrial kind of area, you know, it's, it's, it's where often, you know, a larger brewery you're going to end up with. So, yeah, if you go to uh the restaurant in in uh on camp crown street it's you know a beautiful restaurant and a beautiful old kind of building that's probably about 100 years old um whereas the brewery's in you know a big warehouse on uh you know a pretty industrial road um but we we i think 
if you go to either of our venues, um, and we've also got two venues up in Byron Bay, uh, I think we're very good at kind of making it our own space. So even though, you know, when you go to the brewery as well, it's on an industrial road, uh, particularly on the weekends, it's very, very quiet on that industrial road. You actually walk down and there's nothing going on. And then suddenly you see this kind of beacon of red and yellow um, lights. So we've got a bit of kind of a, a theme to all of our venues, but it's definitely our space. And, and once you're in there, um, you know, it's, 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 it's pretty unique and pretty special. Um, so, yeah. And pump up the tyres of Byron Bay as well. And again, particularly for overseas listeners, most Aussies know where Byron Bay is and what it is. But, you know, why, if you're coming from overseas, might you make the trip up to Byron? I think, yeah, Byron is probably kind of known as a bit of like a a, a surfy capital of the world, you know, a pretty popular kind of backpacker destination um you know the place to just kind of spend a lot of time on the beach um so we've got a second restaurant up there again it's it's not a brewery up there it's just um called Yulee's Byron Bay um and and it's just on Byron Street just off the main street um and then we've also just very recently opened a second restaurant up there which actually doesn't have the Yulee's name behind it but you'll still find uh, 10 taps of Yulee's beers on tap there which is called Walk This Way um which is a a vegan uh, noodle restaurant that you can get lots of what cooking. So that's, I guess, one of the first things that kind of comes through all four of our venues is, as I said, when Newley's opened in Surrey Hills, it was a vegetarian restaurant, but actually all of our venues, you'll now only get um, vegan food. So, but Byron Bay, definitely, you know, a beautiful part of the world. Uh, I, I don't get up there enough, but I, I, I love it whenever we do get to spend some time up there. Uh, we love the fact that people listen on the podcast, but I've got to say there's there's nothing quite so good as when someone does a pun here in the Zoom room on a Thursday night. Please come and be part of that. When you said walk this way, there were so many faces lined, light lit up on Zoom. Um, that's a great name. That's We should have that on a T-shirt. We don't have any T-shirts, but we should have that on a T-shirt. We haven't really gone through the beers, obviously, that were in the pack for this month, but actually um, one of our employees came up with uh, the name for that restaurant. We were trying to look for the name for it. Um, so if you're drinking Big Willie, Big Willie actually came up with the name for the restaurant. <laughs> and uh, we will get on to the beers in the pack. You, you're great at the segues. It's exactly what we should be talking about. But even just the Big Willie, even before you got online tonight, as we were doing our little warm-ups for the show, uh, it's fair to say that Big Willie's got a, a big mention in, uh, along uh, by a number of the people who have already tasted the tasting packs. So let's start to talk about the beers. The beers we're going to be discussing tonight, well, we're kicking off with the Mediterranean Lager. Then we're heading into Slick Rick's Red Ale and then the special batch, uh, the Black Ale. Um, but tell us about the, the lager to begin with and particularly, I guess, what makes a lager a Mediterranean Lager? Yeah, I think um, it probably comes more back to kind of, you know, what Yulis is about. Um, so kind of our little motto or tag behind us is beers with personality. Um, so every single one of our beers, you know, has a character. As you said, you've got um, the sea bass Mediterranean lager, our, our slick rick, our red ale. Um, we were kind of talking earlier, our very first beer that we actually made from Yulis Brews was called Norman. Um, I remember was, that really well, actually, for whatever reason. That one just sort of cut through as a bit of marketing. Yeah. And look, so all of them are, are people associated kind of with Yulis in some way. As I said, we've had a restaurant for 15 years and, and almost, you know, most of the beers are, are linked either to, you know, someone who worked at that restaurant in the time or someone who's worked in the brewery or kind of, you know, someone there's a bit of a story about. So Seabass is actually originally based off um, kind of a, a, a Greek fellow um, that's a very good 
uh, friend of James, one of our two founders. Um, so he's kind of a, a Mediterranean bloke. Um, and, and that's kind of where we started off, you know, as more being kind of a beer that you'd like to drink, you know, in, in <laughs> Mykonos or, you know, something kind of that's just very easy and light drinking. Um, I guess at the same time, uh, you know, while we like to have a bit of fun, I think we, we give a lot of care to this beer. Um, I always struggle whenever we go to enter Seabass into awards. It's very tricky to quite work out where it sits. Um, mm. It's probably pretty close to kind of a German Hellas in terms of its kind of bitterness levels and things like that. But um, we use just a single hop in it. So it's um, using Mochoeca. Um, and it, uh, I don't know a lot of breweries that use Mochoeca as the only hop throughout something like a lager. It's also dry hopped, which is pretty unusual for kind of a lot of the lagers you have these days. Um, but Mochoeca comes from a kind of history of uh, the SARS hop. Um, it's basically kind of New Zealand's bread version of SARS. So you get a lot of that traditional kind of lager character, but obviously with kind of a bit of the kind of fruit and diesel characters that you get out of Mochoeca combined. And, and we really, we, we think it's kind of a great beer, but I also think it has a really unique kind of hop character to it that you don't get out of a lot of other um beers like it so that's kind of that that's it and then besides that you know it's a pretty simple 4.2 percent lager really um clean crisp base um we concentrate pretty heavily on the water as well just to make sure that those hops sing a little bit in it um but at the same time it's meant to be a beer that uh you, you can drink at the footy in fact if you go to the sydney football stadium now in sydney uh you can get seabass on tap so we've, we've been pretty pretty darn excited about that uh, that's only happened in the last couple of weeks i'd love to talk more about that because that sounds exactly like the kind of thing that an operations manager should be you know having an eye to uh, but before we get onto that how long have you been making it and has it always been uh, the mochueca that you've been making it with and i'm um, sort of interested to hear why that hop understand the sars background of the hop itself but how easy is it to source and you know to work with us in that sort of sense yeah new zealand like without kind of diving too deeply into you know brewing industry and and even the small localized kind of no, that's what we love Don't industry worry. You, can, you can dive in as deep as you like um offend yeah. as many people as you want <laughs> um so uh it, look we've been baking this beer since about 2016 it wasn't our first beer but it was um before we'd actually built the brewery um we we'd, we'd released it pretty early on and pretty quickly it became a pretty big product kind of for us um in the early days particularly new zealand hops in australia were really hard to source you know i think if you're a home brewer or if you were a commercial brewer um there was kind of two separate things around new zealand hops you had kind of only one supplier in australia um that you could really that was really getting them into the country and they were not getting allocated very much um you know it's partly there was just such a big demand for such small farms in new zealand at the time um we got pretty lucky with Mochueka. Mochueka has been grown for a very long time in New Zealand. And so I think we found the availability of that not too bad. Um, th there's hops like Nelson Sauvignon, um, which, you know, for most of my brewing career until the last kind of year or so was always pretty tricky to get. You know, I remember some years having to just negotiate or buy lots of other hops in order to get some Nelson thrown in with them and stuff like that. So, um, but Mochoeca, we haven't kind of struggled to get, I guess the thing that's been really exciting for us the last, um, the last couple of years and, and the, the one you're probably drinking now is um, working with freestyle hop farms, um, which are in New Zealand. So previously when we were a bit smaller, uh, you know, we were obviously just buying kind of 
Mochueka from a supplier and that was all we could get. Um, rather now with our kind of hops, we're buying enough Mochueka for Seabass every year that we actually go and get to do some lot selection. Um, and for me, like as a brewer, that, that's just a fascinating thing. It's pretty rare as well. Um, so tell works. us about that. We we love, often we, when we speak to US or European brewers in particular, they get to go and do that kind of thing. It sounds fascinating. How much different difference do you find lot by lot? I think that, I guess there's two sides to it. You know, I think there's an exciting side to it of just like, just being able to, you know, really engage with the agricultural product and, and have kind of that choice over your product on a yearly basis, you know, even just being able to kind of go and make a choice rather than just be given, you know, whatever you bought in the bag, I find really interesting. I think we found it fascinating um, the first time we did it of how bigger variety there was in terms of aroma and things like that uh, between different lots in different hops you know some lots would have kind of huge amounts of lime and um, you know they often talk about kind of diesel character and stuff like that in Mochueka while others were probably a little bit more dull um, you know and I, I guess probably when we're buying US hops and stuff like that you know sometimes you've got to think you know that someone's getting the you know the the top pick rather when you're kind of buying you know just through a supply you never quite know what you're going to get as much so we found that really fascinating but we haven't actually been over um, to New Zealand to do the hop selections. They they do a great little thing. You know, it's it's the best pack ever. Literally just in the mail, you get sent about eight or 10, you know, tiny little 10 gram hop packets and you just pull them all open and spread them all out in the bowls and crush them all up. So I, I kind of, I, they started doing it during obviously COVID lockdowns when people are having to still make decisions and it's, it's great. You know, it makes it um, uh, so much easier. And the second thing, kind of in more traditional hop selections, you were doing whole cones. Mm. Um, rather the way they now do it is they process it and pelletize it and then let you do hop selection and I think you get a far more accurate read you know as a brewer you're very used to kind of what a bag of dried pelletized hops smells like not what fresh cones off the vine smell like and I think also fresh cones off the vine are not necessarily going to give you you know much indication of what they might end up even as dry pellets let alone what they're going to end up in the beer so it's been fascinating for us as a learning experience um I don't, I'm not you know completely sold on hop selection um if you i find it really interesting what we do for all australian hops or at least uh bahas uh, hpa you'd probably know them as who make all of our australian hops or about 93 percent of the volume of australian hops um they they work very very hard to kind of do the opposite um because they've got a very large kind of sector of the market they can basically get galaxy from all over and they try really really hard to make every bag of galaxy you buy really consistent all throughout and and i think there's really good arguments for both ways it's kind of fun getting to pick hops but at the same time being able to buy a bag of hops and know it's kind of going to be a consistent product every single time is so much better than you know going oh I had such a great bag of galaxy early in the year and now I've gotten one that's completely different kind of thing. So it's a, it's a, it's a interesting kind of, you know, every market's different and, you know, every hop market's got very different size players. And does that sort of link into that idea that, you know, you want consistency in your core range, but you want to have sort of specific things to play with when it comes to the, to the specialties or the limited releases? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, Yeah. So I think like, you know, and, and for us as well, the only hops that we're contracting apart the hops that are in our core range, you know, like it's it's hard to kind of contract hops for beers that you don't even know you're going to make yet. So contracting hops for, you know, Seabass with Mochueka, um, you know, and, and kind of our American hop selections and Australian hop selections as well is um is a really fun kind of 
you know, in, nice way to kind of get consistency in the beers because we know that every hot bag, at least for that season, is going to be kind of consistent and similar. Um, but, you know, at the same time, it's great pulling out a brand new new world hop, like, you know, when we've seen uh, Talus and Sabro and things like that come out and they're just, you know, amazingly different to kind of what we're used to. Absolutely. Now, obviously, you're going to be our focus tonight, uh, and the the founders aren't going to listen in, so you can say what you like about them. But we should just sort of do a bit of a shout out early on. What can you tell us about the sort of the Yuli's story at the beginning in terms of the guys behind it, and particularly the ones who made the decision to say, yep, we want to do more than just run the restaurant. We want to actually make our own beer. Can you tell us a little bit of that origin story for us? Yeah, so our two founders are... um... Carl and Harves, or Carl and James. I'll, I'll probably refer to them as Harves because that's what Absolutely. everyone knows he won't listen, as. Don't worry, you can say what you like about him. <laughs> um, so they uh, both started out uh, at the restaurant we talked about. Um, so Carl actually opened the restaurant. He's um, he, he was kind of the original owner and founder of the the Yulee's restaurant in Surrey Hills. Um, and Harves kind of started working there a couple of years after they'd opened, basically as a dishy. Um, I think he was kind of 19 and worked there for a year as a dishy and and was just you know out of school fresh and and looking for a job and I think he was pretty happy there and learn about you know he'd never really been introduced to kind of you know any kind of beer or any kind of food Carl was obviously um had a lot more enthusiasm already you know with the fact that he'd opened a restaurant that had uh you know 10 taps and he was only buying kind of local boutique beer at the time um so I think pretty early on uh halves became pretty interested in it um and carl always had an interest um and i guess uh for a couple of years halves just managed the bar and did a lot of the ordering so he got to know a lot of the um kind of local breweries whether that was you know we talked about like obviously four pines was starting up then um and uh there's very small breweries like happy goblin and um uh i'm sorry the the, the there's a hop dog um, down in Nara as well so kind of a lot of breweries that have have been and gone but uh, uh, people who've kind of been around the industry for a while will know and so he was working with those and buying kegs off very little guys and kind of um, got into home brewing through that as well um, he then won a home brewing competition that was actually run by uh, Young Henry's um, so they they basically sponsored a, a competition at the Vic on the Park um, and he entered a black IPA uh, that mm. was um you know just a beer that he entered and he happened to win the the competition um and so as a result he got to brew his black ipa on a commercial scale with young henry's um so if you have a look back at one of you know the the very early beers that young henry's did they did a beer called lewis black ipa um and that's actually to be honest the recipe for the black ipa that we'll drink later today um as part of the pack is very similar to uh almost identical to be honest um we, we had to just stick with very similar you, just just to make sure that in case there's sort of you know ip lawyers listening in <laughs> i don't think so not for that one i think uh that was in the very early days to young henry's as well but um you know got got a very similar uh style you know and brewed but basically it was the same beer that special batch black ipa even if you read the can was a rendition of the very first beer that was brewed for yuli's brews um so won that competition um and got to brew kind of a commercial batch uh of beer over with young henry's um happened to actually meet the guys who um 
were at Grifter at the same time. Um, they actually already had a couple of tanks. I don't know if you know the Grifter origin story, but they started out of Young Henry's and they had a couple of tanks that they were just making Grifter Pale Ale. Um, so he also met those guys and I think then kind of felt inspired to kind of get into it a bit more. So for the first little while, I was uh, just doing some very small scale gypsy brewing, kind of making literally a couple of kegs at a time that they'd put on the restaurant and um, see what people thought. And pretty quickly, um, scale up from there so started kind of I think the first batch they ordered was kind of 40 kegs and they suddenly went oh god we've ordered we've gone and made 40 kegs of beer out of the brewery and now we've got to try and sell it um, so halves halves was kind of the the main brewer and, and came up with most of the recipes at that time so Norman and Slick Rick uh, and Fat Nerd were the three that they launched with um, Fat Nerd's a vanilla porter that we make as well so uh, started with those three um beers and and kind of launched them uh and for the next kind of almost four years basically slogged it out with kind of the contract brewing game um it's a little bit different nowadays in the industry in terms of there's a lot more breweries that are making contract brewing easy but back then it was really hard to find space yeah sorry someone said in the comments that Eckham so actually was making beer up at Happy Goblin which is now part of the Eckham brewery as well um so, yeah, slogged it out for about four years, basically driving around in a ute around every brewery in Sydney that would, you know, let him brew a tank of beer um, and, and made an awful lot of beers in those first three or four years um, and kind of managed to get it built up enough that people started to recognise the brand. Um, that's probably where uh, I come into the story a little bit, which was... Um, uh, they they started to heavily contract quite a lot out at the Australian Brewery, um, which was a brewery out in Rouse Hill um, that still exists now. Um, and, and so I was working there. So I, I worked there for a couple of years and was contract brewing. Uh, so I was actually making a lot of Yulee's beers as well as a lot of other beers out there. Um, and when kind of in 2017, uh, Harves and Carl talked about building a brewery, I, I pretty quickly kind of put my hand up and said, I'm I'm keen. Um, the Rouse Hill was pretty far out for me. I was driving um, more than an hour every day each way to kind of commute. And, and even just the the move to somewhere a lot more local was very keen. But also I'd, I'd obviously worked with Harves and, and knew Harves and Carl pretty well. Um, and it kind of feels like the rest is history, but that was probably the beginning in a lot of ways for Yulee's in terms of we went from kind of making a lot of one-off batches and not having a lot of, regular or consistent product you know because just trying to even keep consistency when you're brewing beer across you know I think that we probably had 11 or 12 different sites not that we were brewing a lot of beer you know a lot of those were 600 litre breweries or you know very small breweries um, but uh, being able to kind of suddenly get consistency in our own brewery was a big thing so building our own brewery was uh, a big change, I think, for Yulee's as a brand and suddenly gave us the ability to consistently supply pubs and, and bottle shops and everything else. Let's press pause there <laughs> in the sense of how the stories are going to intertwine because what I'd like to do next, well, first of all, we're going to move on to our next beer and then we'll go back to your origin stories and sort of build up in the same point and then we can have this little meshing point where your story and the Yulee's story really comes together. But I'm about to open the Slick Rick. Hopefully that doesn't get muted out by our very sophisticated podcasting systems uh, here that we have. Um, I'd love, you know, we're pouring it into the glass. Hopefully everyone's doing that at home. If you're listening to the podcast version and don't feel you need to sort of keep up, you know, you can press pause between beers. That's the beauty of listening to the podcast version. 
Um, but when you're ready, Tom, can you take us on a little sort of tasting tour of this beer, you know, right from how it should appear in the glass as we look at it? I've got a bit of white light behind me there. What we should be smelling on the nose and then obviously the flavours as well. And then we'll move on to tell the story of this beer a little bit more. So I guess um, you'll hear a common theme in a lot of our beers, Slick Rick, uh, when you enter it into a judging category is really, really hard. It's uh, a bit too high in alcohol to be a red ale. Um, so you start to look at a red IPA, but it's probably a little bit too malty uh, to be a red IPA. So it sits somewhere in between that kind of, you know, nice, you know, uh, kind of malty red ale um, and then having kind of the hop levels of an IPA. Um, but we, we use, I guess, again, and every beer that we brew at Yuli's Balance, I think is something that we really kind of strive for um, and, and so that's what we kind of do with Rick uh, so the malts that we use in it we use uh, kind of obviously a, a nice strong ale malt um, but we use a lot of Cara Red. Um, Cara Red's kind of a really fascinating malt it's a little bit like a crystal malt that's been um, uh, caramelized quite a bit more and I find it's a very unique malt there's not a lot of uh, kind of even a lot of the beers that you make with red kind of malts uh there's a lot of malts out there to make really really red beers don't give kind of the richness of uh what cara red does that's a way a vehement product um, and then we also put a little bit of chocolate uh in just just to give it that kind of chocolatey notes on the end um we then combine that with uh all american hops uh oh sorry no vic secret actually as well um out of australia but all of the hops that we're aiming for both out of America and Australia are really pine driven. So rather than um, a lot of our other beers where we'll try to look for citrus, uh, you know, and tropical fruits, um, we use Amarillo, Vic Secret and uh, uh, Chinook, I think. Amarillo, Vic Secret and Chinook, yeah. Uh, th those three, which I find all three of those hops just have a big pine resinous hit. Um, and, and for me, whenever you're pairing with kind of maltier beers, that pine resin, more classic kind of American, you know, old school American IPA pairs far better with that malt base than if you put lots of tropical kind of citrus hops in. Um, so that's kind of where we're trying to achieve that balance between the two. And I, I really like this beer. I think it's a great uh, blend of kind of malt and hops and bitterness and alcohol. And it all kind of comes together in a pretty balanced drinkable beer rather than it being too strong in any one front. I really want to, you've said a lot there. I want to take you even back to, to the caramel and so forth. And just sort of, when you're talking about the richnesses that, that it brings, are you talking just in terms of the colour or the flavours and the, the mouthfeel as well? Because we hear often brewers say, and we just chuck in a bit of this just to add the colour, but it won't change the flavour. So what can you tell us about that malt, given it's a bit unique? Power Red's a little bit the opposite. Um, you know, if you look at... Uh, uh, supply uh, you know we can get really deep but if we look at suppliers like gladfield and um voyager they make a lot of malts that are really driven around trying to achieve a certain color i think uh the munich there's a specific type of munich that voyager make and gladfield make a, a red x or not a red x it's, it's called a red uh something rather malt which, which is really trying to drive a very specific color and actually it's really interesting when you make beers with those colors because uh, when you actually go and measure the colour of a beer, it's measured in SRM or EBC, they don't line up right. The EBC range kind of goes from, you know, 
nice and uh, pale and, you know, kind of all the way through to black, but red is not really in the scale. You kind of go through amber into brown. And if you look at the scale, there's a, a touch of red, but all of those beers that you make with those malts, they never kind of line up in the the, the correct ABC scale. You find a, a lot of analytics guys in beer get frustrated because you kind of, they don't read correctly. They'll read darker or lighter than they actually look. Um, now, now, I've got to say, I love acronyms more than anyone else <laughs> in the world. Uh, but we do have, as well as a lot of really experienced uh, craft beer drinkers, joining us from New Zealand. Joining us, as I've just seen now, our friend James is over in Liverpool at the moment. So great to have people from all around the world. But you better explain to us a little bit about some of those acronyms that you're using as we start to go down the rabbit hole of beer nerdistry, which is what we love to do here in the call room. Yeah, so uh, EBC um, stands for European Brewing Convention, um, and it's actually a, a specific way of measuring colour. Um, SRM is just uh, standard reference measurement, I think, um, which again... That might is, be the world's most boring acronym ever. They're both pretty boring, aren't they? They both don't even sound like they should refer to colour in any way. But SRM uh, could be used in any industry. I'm just going to start to, you know, to <laughs> drop in. Oh, well, according to the standard reference me- measure, you know, in my next discussion about, I don't know, public toilet provision in inner cities <laughs> yeah just drop in the srm yeah so uh, they're both just a, a a way of measuring color so srm is uh you can look up the standard reference standard reference method and that's you know basically that you're um kind of shooting a beam of light through the beer and taking a measurement on the other end and working out how much light comes through and then deriving a, a figure from that that determines color and european the European Brewing Convention has its own way of doing that. That's very, very similar. Um, the figures are interesting. They end up kind of being about half. So if you're measuring something in uh, EBC, you can halve it into SRM. Um, but uh, yeah, look, they're just, you know, the same IBU. You, if, if you're ever looking at a beer, you know, the, the, the kind of three most common things you'll get is obviously the ABV, um, which most of us know means how much alcohol is in it. Um, ABV means alcohol by volume which uh is different to alcohol by weight if you're ever looking at it but uh and then you've got your uh ebc or your uh srm which is your color um and then the last one you sometimes see which is ibu which just stands for international bitterness units and so how bitter do you believe that ibu is a real thing (laughs) like like is 110 bigger than 100 or is it just like spinal tap turning it up to 11 at that point yeah I i think with ibu it's pretty proven that kind of your you've everyone has their own threshold for bitterness um so beyond a certain point you're going to get uh past that ibu the other interesting thing is when we talk about hazy beers um particularly they misread a lot they've got so much hot material and suspension that when you actually do the the correct testing method for how to measure how bitter a beer is it kind of gives a result that doesn't necessarily reflect actually how bitter the beer is so it's like everything in life it's slightly more complicated than than just throwing out a number and saying yep that's what it is (laughs) oh there's your t-shirt for the night we know what episodes 149's t-shirt's gonna be um you mentioned a whole lot of hops there as well we're working through what you were saying uh, Chinook was maybe the one that stood out to me the most as a hop that we maybe hear a bit less about now than we did 10 years ago. Uh, can you tell us again, for people who might be a bit newer to sort of craft beer, what's the history of the Chinook hop and why do you still like to use it in a beer like this? You, you see Chinook in, I guess, very classic American pale owls and American IPAs, um, you know, in kind of the triple 
uh, sorry, the seven C's. Um, I'm not sure I could name them anymore. I used to be able to, but you know, there's, Gee, there's a lot would of... be a really good trivia question if ever we did trivia again. Um, so there's there's a lot of kind of old school hops that all start with C in America. That um, you know, probably starting with Cascade is the one that probably everyone knows in Sierra Nevada. Um, Citra Centennial. Yeah, uh, Chinook. Chinook. Uh, Come on, people in the people Columbus, in the chat can help us out here so that we look really smart. Columbus, uh, uh, CTZ, yeah. Anyway, look, there's um, there's there's a whole range of them. Uh, most of the sea hops, are, what we were kind of relating back to, was that pine and that resin. You know, if you're drinking Sierra Nevada, you know, you get that kind of kind of fresh pine and resinous rather than what we're used to from hops like Citra and Mosaic, which I'd describe as much more stone fruit. Um, and and I love you know, all of the newer world American hops. And I think they're great and brilliant, but I often find when you pair them with a maltier beer, um, you know, you, they're not as in sync or in balance. Um, and so that's kind of why they're using hops like Chinook and, and Amarillo is a really good one as well. Amarillo, I, I, I describe kind of, it's kind of that, uh, that pine and resinous, but turned up to 11 Amarillo is really, really high. Um, and then Vic Secret was the other one we talked about, which is actually an Australian um, hop. It's one of the, kind of newer hops out of um, Australia, which has got, uh, you know, again, lots of pine and resin rather than being on a huge kind of tropical fruit um, scale. Now, we're going to get on to talking about your backstory in a moment, but just before we move off, you know, Mr. Slick Rick himself, is there a story behind the man on the can? <laughs> uh, yeah, there is, there is. So uh, if you've got the beers in front of you, like, you'll see there's actually a poem on the back of every single one. Um, so we talked about our two founders. So Carl, um, one of our I mean, founders. You, you, do, you do think my eyesight is much better than it is. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, look, we do try sometimes. You should see some of the poems are, are longer than others. Um, we've actually, we'll be releasing a beer in the next uh uh, next month or so, which has got a haiku on it, so that'll be a very easy one to read. That's, um, I'm all for haikus. That's <laughs> let's go haiku. Um, but uh, yeah, so Slick Rick uh, is uh, yeah, kind of loosely based off again a, a friend of one of our founders um, called Hick. But you know, he's he's kind of driving a fast sports car, kind of got the slick back hair. Um, you know, and I, and I think Slick Rick to me just perfectly encapsulates the red ale as well you know it's got kind of he's got the flair and the color um you know maybe a little bit old school maybe <laughs> good good man let's talk about you and your background let's start from the very beginning you know do you remember the first sort of beer you had or the first craft beer you had where was it and what was it yeah i um actually it was back uh during university i kind of traveled around American spent a bit of time in America and I didn't like I wasn't drinking any craft beer or anything and I was um in uh just basically I was I was in Washington DC and had some kind of friends that we were hanging out with and they were uh, they'd just come back from Vermont and and this was this would have been about uh nine years ago eight and a half nine years ago um and I remember them bringing home a, a beer I went oh this is great this is really really good you know, we've been getting this locally and it was Heady Topper. And I reckon one of the very first craft beers that I'd ever had properly in my life was Heady Topper, which I think just I completely lucked out with that. Like I was going to say, you know, there's, <laughs> there's, that's not our traditional sort of, oh, yeah, I had a couple of Redbacks once kind of story. 
Yeah, look, it was, it was obviously the same time back in Australia that James Squire was becoming a thing. So I, I, you know, had a few kind of, you know, James Squire, Amber Ales and, and things like that, but hadn't really had anything. And I remember just having that, you know, big double, uh, I think it's, you know, it's about an 8% beer or a 7.5%, you know, double double IPA or, you know, somewhere in that hazy realm, hard to kind of quite place that beer. You know, it's very high in IBUs compared to a lot of hazies now. But that, that was probably my first kind of craft beer. And then I was lucky enough, we spent about... Um, four months traveling around America and and just being in America for that first, you know, there's just a world of beer that was different. Um, so that was, that was kind of my introduction and then spending four months just, just drinking, you know, pretty cheap, but pretty great fresh American craft beer on both the East coast and the West coast uh, as basically my first introduction to craft beer and then came back to Australia and, and um, I was just at uni at that stage, but pretty quickly went, this is something I want to be involved in. Um, so uh that was kind of that was my first beer <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to ask the question which is being alluded to in the chat here which is were you just drinking jd and cola as you uh traveled through the u.s you know i'm from bendigo there's no shame in drinking jd and cola when you're growing up but we're going to move right on to that question of what were you studying at uni and what did you actually do when you figured out you wanted to be part of the brewing industry and started to make beer what what actually happened at that moment well, I guess I came back, uh, I was during first year uni, I came back from uh, this American trip and kind of uh, was was still at uni, but um, just was at the same time fascinated by um, the craft beer industry. And so was just kind of looking into it a little bit and actually had just a family friend um, of ours that uh, kind of got in touch and gave us a little tour of the James Squire Brewery. Um, so actually a family friend of ours is Chuck Hahn. Um. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. So that, I think that, that seems like a fairly important point in the uh, in the story here. And again, you know, for our Indian listeners, can you explain a little bit about who Chuck Hahn is? Yeah, so Chuck Hahn has got a he, – he's actually only just retired in the last um, – about two months ago. He's, he's finally retired from – oh, no, not even about a month ago. Um, from Lyon finally but he's he's had a huge kind of influence on the Australian craft beer but also just a pretty amazing career uh, across the world so he I think he, he started out in the Coors Brewery in America um, and brewing uh, and, and helping kind of as, as a very young engineer to, to help with the Coors family and, and build their brewery um, and then you know obviously the Hahn name in Australia is very well known for the Hahn Brewery um, yeah it's had you can listen to lots of podcasts about his whole history, um, but, but basically then came to Australia, started kind of, you know, a boutique brewery before there was really a lot like that in Australia, um, as responsible for kind of breweries like James Squire and Kosciuszko and then even kind of new ones that we're seeing um, kind of pop up all over the country now. Uh, but um, uh, yeah, so it's, uh that that was look he he's just uh, kind of a family friend of ours that I just happened to have a connection with um you know wasn't very close to him uh you know beyond a bit of a family connection but I I met up with him he showed me around the brewery and he also said oh I'm actually uh, judging at some um some awards which were the uh at the time the CBIA awards um the craft beer industry awards um and so I then went and stewarded for those awards. And that was my very first kind of introduction to a completely different world of Australian beer. Um, and that was kind of at the time, I think it was, it was literally like modus operandi had opened their doors about 
um, you know, two months before and they'd entered a, some, you know, all their beers in there and basically cleaned up every single award at the judging <laughs> um, at the time and things like that. So I'd stewarded there um, and, and that was kind of my in of kind of going, oh, this is a great industry, um, you know, and, and I was still at uni, but, uh, and at the same time met uh, someone called David Phillips, um, who started Dave's Brewery Tours. Um, and so kind of got chatting to him because he was stewarding as well. Um, and pretty quickly, I found myself about a month and a half afterwards, um, had gotten a job on the weekends doing brewery tours around some of the very early Sydney breweries. And he'd just basically started Dave's Brewery Tours about six months before that. And so your your media studies uh, degree, or what was it you were doing? All of that just went by the wayside, or did you finish off, a, your, finish off your engineering degree first? I was doing a civil engineering degree. Yeah, um, that fits. That's okay. <laughs> um, so I, I I kept going uh, with the civil engineering degree while I was working with uh, Dave's Brewery Tours. So um, went through for a, a couple of years doing that, um, and and just kind of trying to push myself a little bit into the beer industry so I, I did a little bit of a, a stint at wayward actually just because i i they they were literally just opening their doors and so i went and worked there before they had a bar and like that open kind of uh, helping sean out and just volunteering um and then pretty quickly after that i managed to get a, a gig doing um working out at the australian brewery um through kind of a a, a link through that um neil cameron who's kind of a big uh, name in the industry it was working with Dave from Dave's Brewery Tours and and they kind of helped me out and managed to get me a job out there pretty quickly and and kind of that that's the story from there kind of thing you know the, the, there's the two intersecting paths well let's uh, let's talk about the Australian Brewery just on the way through there because that's sort of something a few of us a certain generation saw a bit of mm. but can you explain a little bit more about what that was and I guess Perhaps what you learned in an environment where you were doing that sort of contract brewing, especially, did it sort of equip you, you know, a bit like when you talk to doctors, going to a rural hospital is a useful thing because you see every single kind of case that walks in the door. And so you get this broad palette of experience early. Is that a bit what you got there or? You know, what yeah, was I think like? the Australian brewery is still not very, like it's, it was contracting for, you know, a few people. Um you know they they're not a massive contractor you know they're nothing like tribe or anything like that uh the brewery mainly existed for their own brand which are the australian brewery beers if you remember from the early days of kind of the slimline cans coming out um and things like that so uh working there was great actually i got to work with you know obviously yuli's brews which i'm very thankful for but i also got to work with some great brewers so neil cameron who's a real um, you know, really knowledgeable, really intelligent guy. You know, a lot of the breweries that are being installed right now and have been for the last three or four years around the country have been, he's had a, a hand or a touch touch on. Um, so he's he was a great kind of mentor, even though he was stepping out of the role there. And then the guys out there as well, Dan Shaw, who's the head brewer, really, really knowledgeable. Um, and and there's uh, also Charlie um, Claridge, who works out there, is kind of a really smart scientist um way way overqualified for what he does but but really really passionate as well um so working with those guys there i just had amazing support kind of to learn and to grow pretty quickly um and then combined with that you know we were doing contracts for doctor's orders um so doctor's orders and and so ha having doc come in and do all of these different beers and getting to just brew all sorts of weird and wacky things it just learned a huge amount in a pretty short time of what was possible with beer you know i think that was the time when doc 
had just gone into cans with a lot of things. So, you know, did the the rhubarb sour and the, um, you know, there was a hop hash black IPA, you know, all sorts of. Really... I have such happy memories of that brewery. Uh, there was the, the Redstone sort of scoria uh, red ale where they sort of killed off the yeast with the heated rocks, yep. sort of old school Viking style. That tasted amazing. And I think I'm right in saying that they made a, a effectively a tonic water esque beer. Uh, and so we had a, at Mr. Griffiths in Kensington, I don't know why I'm plugging it, it's no longer there, which was one of the first venues I ever had. We had a whole summer of uh, gin and doctor's orders tonic beer. It was just amazing. Yeah. So I helped, helped had some very late brew night with Juniper getting stuck in the heat exchanger with Doc. I think we were at the brewery until about 11.30 p.m. trying to clear the juniper out of the heat exchanger <laughs> for that one. Yeah. Well, we've had our little break here in the cool room and uh, we've had some great conversations. Just remember, you only get to be part of the off-mic conversations before and in the middle and after the uh, the recorded parts of the session if you're here in the Zoom room with us. As you heard at the beginning of the show, we've got some really fun things coming up. We'd love you to be part of them, particularly if you're new to the cool room. Don't be shy. You'd be most, most welcome in the Zoom room with us. And we're here with the man who is no longer the head brewer, uh, but is the uh, operations manager. Tom, before we get on to the delicious black beer that's in front of us, I want to hear a little bit more about the football stadium, Sydney football stadium deal that you mentioned right at the beginning and I should have asked more about. How do you get a contract like that? And what do you think it says about where craft beer is at in Sydney and Australia? I think obviously we talked about my, you know, kind of origins of first trying craft beer and, and going around America. And I remember, you know, again, this was almost 10 years ago, going around and seeing a, we went and saw a baseball game and there was, you know, Sierra Nevada torpedo on tap at the baseball game and everything like that, you know, and, and coming back to Australia and, and kind of just seeing what you could get in the stadium. I just, I definitely in my mind thought, oh, there's no way, you know, like anything like that's going to change in Australia. So dominated by the two big guys. Um, and, and I think, uh, you know, Gage Rhodes over in WA really led the way in terms of showing that you could have you know something a little bit you know interesting and different you know on a, on as a stadium but um we, we've worked with um Maribel, you know reasonably closely for a while with Yulis and and um we just kind of uh, were very lucky uh you know the Maribel guys when they took over the stadium and and did kind of all of the the kind of fit out for the new stadium um they were just involved in, including in the beer selection um and they really thought that our Seabass Lager would do really well. Um, I think it's really hard, in a, even in a stadium, you know, they've got to be careful about alcohol, but they've been really supportive of a lot of um, inner West breweries. So, in fact, at the moment, if you go into the stadium, not only can you get our lager, but you can get an IPA from um, Batch Brewing Company. You can get uh, Young Henry's. Um, I think you can get a filter as well. So um, it's it's not even just one beer. You know, it's it's uh, they've got kind of craft beers around. So it's uh, it feels like a completely... I don't know, just an experience that I didn't expect to ever see um, in, in somewhere like Sydney particularly. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're really excited and we're just stoked. Um, we've got kind of a lot of people that are, uh, you know, both big rugby supporters, um, but but also the cricket as well. Um, so if you're in the members stand, 
over at the SCG. Um, you can also get CBAS as well. So, um, well, yeah, it's unlikely I'm ever going to be doing that. Tell me what I can get over the other side of the stadium, and that's <laughs> what I'll be. You know, that's where I'll be drinking. But that's a fantastic lineup of breweries you've spoken about at the rugby. It reminds me of the uh, the exact breweries that you know Mr. Croft and I were doing when we went on our Sydney beer crawl. Uh, a month or two ago, go back and check the archives for that and go back and check the archives for our interviews with Sierra Nevada, which we uh, had recently. So um, enormous big names. And you're right, the US has sort of led the way. Some of those breweries have really sort of punched a hole through in venues that you'd have never expected craft beer to have been served. Mm. Yeah, I think just like as a bit of an insider, um, we actually got a bit of a tour of... um, you know the whole stadium uh including you know the the pouring systems and you know just it's you know amazing like the amount of cool rooms and pouring systems and everything they've got but um you know one of the interesting things like you know it's it's really interesting that they were talking a bit about the price of beer as well you know obviously in australia stadium beer has always been very expensive and i know in the news even like the you know there was a few articles kind of saying oh god you know the price of beer is even more expensive here but but something that i just never thought about which i found kind of fascinating was because you know all stadiums are such funny venues you know they're only open one day or maybe two days a week um you know and and they're still having to do all the regular maintenance on beer lines but they've also got such huge distances between like the cool room and and where the beer comes through that uh, you know they they end up actually wait you know i think something like uh 30 kegs or 35 kegs of beer every time they clean the lines for the whole stadium so um there's kind of quite a lot of an awful an awful new year's eve that they do every year (laughs) yeah exactly well you know the seller guys are really good there you know they're cleaning their lines you know just as regularly as as a normal pub would so it's um there's some pretty big kind of costs associated with trying to make sure that that uh, you know, you're still getting, you know, the best schooner ever in at the stadium as well. But I was just something that an element that I had never really thought about was just the logistics around pouring at that kind of thing. So it was a fascinating getting a bit of a tour around there as well. No, and you're absolutely right that I said before, before the people from the MCG marched down to my office, I completely accept that there's an enormous amount of effort that goes into those sort of places. And it's fascinating to see the difference in logistics between having a keg under a bar in a small venue that, you know, runs through a metre, you know, of line compared to, you know, running a two-storey venue compared to running, you know, something the size of a stadium like the MCG, the SCG or the Sydney Football Stadium. But enormous for you guys to have that on board. And has that made a difference, do you think, in terms of people discovering the brand as well? Uh, I think, like, it, to be honest, you know, the stadium only opened what, three weeks ago. <laughs> so I think I, I think it's too early to tell. But I think, you know, for us, um, yeah, just, just even having a chance to be there and, and be kind of, you know, one of the breweries pioneering forwards of, you know, having some better beer on tap at stadium. Like, that's, that's the thing that we're really proud of. Um, you know, I think, I don't know, like, Yulis, we've, we've grown from a small place and, and I still feel that you know in a lot of ways we're still kind of a pretty small local brewery to sydney so i think like aspirations of it you know taking us to the moon kind of thing probably aren't quite there but you know we're just we're just really pleased to be involved and and yeah just just feel really lucky in that way awesome we'd love that sort of positivity that you're radiating there that's what we love to hear let's talk about this beer that we have in the glass in front of us before we go to some audience questions uh 
you've sort of hinted at it a couple of times along the way, but this special batch, the the black ale, what can you tell us about this? So I think we kind of alluded to, um, you know, the story behind this beer, um, you know, and, and it, it is basically the, the same recipe as the very first, um, you know, beer that was originally brewed on that home scale for competition back um, nine years ago. Um, so from a story point of view, that's where it comes from. Our special batch range is something that's only really been around for the last kind of maybe year and a half or so. Um, before we get into the beer for a second, Yuli's is really quite challenging, I've found, you know, coming from another brewery and then working with Carl and Harves, every character has a lot of thought and a lot of time and a lot of effort put into it, you know, trying to make something feel really succinct, you know, like the Slick Rick and, you know, where the beer and the character and it all feels kind of right and together. Um, I have, to be honest, found a little frustrating, not frustrating, but just, you know, the amount of work in art and, and you know, spinning a poem. And, and to be honest, if you ever meet the two founders, like, you know, they they talk about these characters when they're making the beers like they're, you know, making a new human being. You know, they talk about the persona of the character. And I think artists often get frustrated with them because of the amount of back and forth to capture, you know, what the two of them have in their head. So, you know, there's a lot of effort and a lot of time, far more than what you'd ever see on the can um, that comes out. And so I, I think there was kind of two things, partly out of my frustration of how much effort it was for us to release a new beer, um, and also partly just for us as brewers being able to showcase, you know, some more weird and wacky and one-off beers making kind of smaller batches. So the special batch wizard on the front is kind of a character that appears across all of these. That's what I was going to cans. ask. That's where I thought we were going. Yeah. Yeah. So that that the front of that can, um, we're, we're, we're changing up with colours and um, you know, different formats and textures. Um, we've, you know, just recently released a passion fruit IPA, which, you know, has got lots of passion fruit texture on the can and, um, you know, a Marzen, which looks, you know, almost like a German Oktoberfest flag and things like that, but basically just keeping our kind of special batch wizards still, you know, part of the formula. Um, and it just gives us a way to, you know, make a style and, and tell a story about the style and, and the tasting that's in the back of a beer without necessarily having to kind of, you know, come up with an entire human being for the for the the front of the can um so that's kind of where it is and and really it's letting our brewers kind of have a a really good play so um you know our, our head brewer jamie's done quite a few special batch beers now and and this one is actually uh halves J- james's special batch beer so he just wanted to have a rendition back to the original um so i guess we talk about the beer black ipa i find um really fascinating you know, as a, as a style of beer, I, I got some really good advice early on from uh, Dave Padden from Akasha, um, who really, you know, I think Akasha of, of the breweries that know how to work with hops, um, you know, I think they are, are, you know, leading in Australia kind of thing. And, and so he just said, you know, you want to take a beer and, you know, basically make it, you know, obviously black in colour, but try to have as little of that black flavour coming through as possible. Um, and I think, you know, Harves' original recipe was kind of the same crack at that. So um, in this beer, we basically used just a bit of roasted malt um, to generate the colour. In fact, we only used, um, I think it was hus- hus- huskless roasted wheat um, in this beer, uh, which uh, basically gives lots and lots of colour. 
Um, but husks, you know, in, in stout and things like that, when you have roast barley, the husk and the burnt husk is what provides a lot of kind of the, the bitterness, but also a lot of that roasty, acrid kind of... Um, Almost you know, the tannin. dustiness of it, which I always feel odd saying when you're drinking a liquid. But to me, you get that sort of grainy dustiness coming through of some of those husks coming in there. Yeah, exactly. And so I think um, we were obviously trying to, you know, avoid that as much as possible. And I think making a black IPA, you know, what you... You're never going to quite be there. Whenever you put that much colour into beer, there's going to be roast character to it. But I think trying to reduce the roast character as much as possible is is kind of the aim of any of it. And so not only do do we, you know, try to use just a really dark coloured malt and a really small amount of it, um, but also from a brewing technique point of view, rather than mashing in with that grain and really combining it with the bed, um, what we do is we just throw it in kind of right towards the end of um, the laddering. Um, so where you're just kind of washing the grains over and and just on the end of the bed so that you're hopefully extracting colour without getting a lot of kind of the the mashed, um, you know, enzymatic kind of richness that comes out from mashing in with it as well. Um, so I've actually, I've had a black IPA recently, which just used, you can get a carafa syrup um from Viamin as well so they make they make this really interesting color additive that's um meant to kind of obey the german purity laws so they can add color to beer without getting much flavor and so they basically take really dark black malt and make a beer with it and then boil it down until it's a syrup so that it's got you know almost no volume to it so you can actually get carafa syrup which is a really interesting thing does that um, abide by the german purity laws remembering that we'll be speaking to some germans over the next month yeah, or so like, yeah it does it's it's made by vehemen and it's made as a color additive that's malt derived so it's it's malt derived it's you know it, it, it it's only got malt in it basically um stick around for the controversy that will ensue over the next month or so my friends so whether you're in the zoom room or joining us in the podcast version i reckon we're going to explore that idea about what you can actually put in there but that's i find that fascinating and the color of this is beautiful i love this style of beer and this one's not over the top there's a i think you've resisted the urge to sort of make it a ridiculous sort of black ipa this is you could you could session this very happily yeah and i think i think the hops then you know drive back to home so i, I think the two Best hops and look, this is the, the same as the original recipe, but um, using Citra and then Sriracha Ace. Um, and Sriracha Ace is a hop you might have heard about a few years ago. Actually, we struggled to source it. It's not being used very often anymore, but it's uh, got some kind of Japanese history to it, Sriracha Ace. Um, and it's it's got a really interesting kind of citrus, uh, almost kind of lemony um, character to it. Um, and, I, and I find that it's it's really unique as well. You know, if you just make it with citra, I think it's a very different beer to kind of what we've got here. Um, and, and I think that kind of lemony, lemon rind really comes through a lot more and, and helps, you know, balance out that kind of uh, roasted malt. And I think black IPA is really, you know, it's interesting we're talking about not using citrus and not using tropical fruit hops. But I think when you get to that really dark malt, having just, you know, really lemon light citrus, you know, that's the perfect kind of uh, contrast for this kind of beer. Absolutely. It's it's delicious. Uh, I've got one more question that I need to ask, and it's one that we've alluded to in the chat along the way here. We're called The Cool Room Podcast, not because we're cool, but because The Cool Room is where all of the action happens, and that's where bad things happen. We We love explosion stories. We love people finding sharks or apprentices under blocks of ice or something. 
you've alluded to the fact already when you were doing the doctor's orders that you had those experiences of trying to get the juniper out of the uh, out of the system. Think back on your experiences, not where you are now. We always sort of take it away from naming venues, but have there been places you've worked or places you've had a beer where you've walked into a cool room or walked into a brewing facility and you've seen things where you go, someday I've got to tell people that story. There's something a little bit more than just sort of meets the eye about how these places work. I think like probably my worst stories are my own, <laughs> my, my own fault kind of thing. You know, I'd like, I'd like to throw someone under the bus. You know, I think no, we, class- we like that. We've, we've had all sorts of people who've accidentally pressed the lever the wrong way and, you know, imploded or exploded, you know, tanks due to temperature differentials and so forth. I think I've probably, there's there's a few ones. Um, you know, I, I think I've seen the classic one before, um, yeah, my previous brew at the Australian Brew, where we once had, you know, a tank that just, you know, went skyrocketing, you know, up into the air and hit the roof with beer. And, you know, it's, they're always a bit scary, those moments. But what, um, what, what caused it, can we ask? Uh, they talk about kind of different things. Uh, it's it's always a little <laughs> yeah, bit like hard. NASA says that a lot. Like <laughs> the rocket worked or it didn't because of different <laughs> things we talk about. Like generally, what causes you know a, a, a big old hot rocket out of a tank is that you've got a really high level of carbon dioxide dissolved in the beer, um, and particularly when you're kind of brewing on a commercial scale, we're usually dry hopping through a tiny little port, you know, two inches, um, and we're throwing. 5, 10, 20 kilograms of dry hops in and they just create all this nucleation points. You know, if you ever dropped a hop in water, you see how quickly it kind of expands and spreads out. So when you chuck 20 kilos into beer and it starts to expand and spread out, you know, you just get this huge amount of expansion of CO2 very, very quickly. So you can look up plenty of videos on YouTube of tanks going out but i think probably and, and to explain nucleation points for very new listeners that's pretty much what you're talking about when you drop a mentos into a soft drink it's 100%, 100%. all of a sudden there's a way of the gas getting out of the liquid out of suspension isn't it yeah yeah exactly so and it just uh you know i think it's a bit hard for brewers sometimes to work out what in a particular tanks cause so much co2 to be in solution because often you know we're not dry hopping beers that are fully carbonated ever or anything like that so it's it's often just kind of the the wrong time and a wrong combination of things um but seen that before i think probably uh the two stories you know i I said i very briefly started at wayward very early on you know and i think i never got a job there and i think one of the reasons why was um (laughs) it was i think you know december the 18th or the 17th and um the head brewer there you know i was just literally just learning about beer and I was doing some kegging off for them and they had a, you know, he'd made this one-off 300 litre tank of some Belgian Christmas ale. I'm sure as well the, uh, the, the head brewer definitely covered up for me, but I was kegging off something and got distracted or didn't notice and I think put about half of this beer down the drain, you know, 8% uh. Belgian spiced Christmas ale and, uh, he was very polite, you know, he didn't have a go at me, he didn't get angry or anything like that, but I I, I don't think he's ever talked to me about it ever since. I think it's probably a, a very small part of him that feels <laughs> still upset about that. Um, when you say a small part, do you think it might actually be a rather large part? Yeah, about 50% of the tank, so yeah, it was... <laughs> um yeah so i think that that's one of my stories I and mean, then the other one we actually made a um 
uh, one of my the very first beer that I kind of really designed and made out at the Australian Brewery was a collaboration with Jonathan from Bucket Boys. Um, so we did a uh, this was this was just when hazy beers were just starting to become popular, and Jonathan and I were just having a beer one night and chatting, and we decided to. Um, you know, he said, "Well, look, in the states, they've they're already doing hazy beers. They already, you know, at the time they were called always called kind of East Coast IPAs." And he said, "But there's a couple of little breweries that are starting to do really heavily lactose infused hazy beers." Um, so this is about six years ago. We did um, the a, a pina colada milkshake IPA, um, which was toasted coconut and pineapple uh, and a huge amount of hops, uh, and it was. Uh, um you know it was all all the things that probably at Yulies we'd we'd never do anymore in terms of being you know out of balance but it was so much fun as a brewer you know like we toasted coconut and threw it all in but we were also you know kind of going dock style and just throwing things in a tank and I can tell you put 40 kilograms of shredded toasted coconut straight into a fermenter and trying to get it out you know every single bit of coconut catches you know on the the triclav um clamp coming out and our head brewer or not our head brewer um one of our kind of really experienced brewers max hamily who's now the head brewer for filter um i remember was you know cleaning this tank out and just got covered in coconut and pineapple and yeast and all sorts of disgusting stuff and as a german you know brewer who does everything right and proper you know it was just everything against you know purity laws and everything else and uh, i think he was far too nice to me at that point but um you know just shook his head and went oh you know what are you doing tom <laughs> that's that's beautiful and i think it's it's one of those things i forgot i've got to give another shout out i went and brewed with coke and spirit as a couple of weeks ago shout out to them i think our cold ipa is still on tap out there but i'd forgotten just both you know how simple and how amazing the systems that people brew on are in terms of how to clean them what a simple injection of water at a certain point will do or you know the watering process and all those sort of things that when you have that kind of technology you can do amazing things or you can create some big problems for yourself which they stopped me doing i have to say (laughs) yeah yeah that's good we're going to throw over to some audience questions. We love the fact that the people who come and join us here in the cool room, like Tom, are so willing to talk to the people who are in the Zoom room with us. Uh, and again, a reminder that if you're not joining us in the Zoom room and just listening to us in the podcast version, you're missing out a bit. Please come and join us on Thursday nights in the Zoom room. And, well, I thought I was going to be throwing to Crofty. I don't know whether Crofty's just done a runner. So... Uh, Mr. Muggs, if you're there and ready to unmute, we might go to your audience question first. Probably got room for one or two more audience questions if they're out there. Thanks, David. Uh, Hi, Tom. Um, One's a pretty simple question, but you can get into whatever detail you choose to. Is is more just the the future of uh, where Yuli's beers are going and you know what what sort of projects you have going forward you know are you doing crazy stuff like barrel projects and sour projects or you just got some interesting things lined up that are you know on the horizon yeah i think um we've got we've got some pretty interesting beers on the horizon we always work with barrels um 
you know, in a small capacity, we don't have a huge amount of space on our site. So a lot of stuff's, um, you know, single barrel kind of keg release. Um, we always do a yearly release of our dad's army Imperial Stout, um, which is aged in a different spirit barrel every single year. So that that's that's just come out recently, which is a um, actually a collaboration with Bricks Distillery. So it's a rum barrel aged Imperial Stout. Um, from the more complex side of things, we've got a really interesting project, which I don't quite know what's going to come out quite yet, but we're doing a barrel-aged IPA um, uh, where we're kind of going to do a really interesting technique. Generally, barrel-aged and IPA don't really go hand in hand, you know, fresh hops and all that character and and then aging for six to nine months in, in oak. Um, but we're basically, we've aged a base IPA um, in barrels um, and we're going to transfer it back into stainless steel and dry hop it with fresh hops. That's our eight o'clock scoop. That sounds amazing. Yeah, so that one that one should be a really good one. I, it, it'll be out before Christmas. I'm not quite sure exactly when, um, but we'll definitely be out before Christmas. Um, one that's really exciting that we're actually literally brewing the beer for tomorrow is Chiho, um, which is a beer that we've made once before. We actually did it for Gabs. Um, so it's a the style of beer for that is called a sipper, um, an S I I. PA, um, which is a sake double IPA. Um, so there's not too many beers like it around. I, the, the, you know, there's a couple of breweries that have experimented a little bit with kind of Koji, but um, we've worked pretty heavily with um, a, a, a woman called Chiho, who's worked with Yulis and around Yulis for a good couple of years. Um, and she's very kind of experienced at homemade sake, sake making and things like that. And um, so she's made kind of a, basically a sake koji culture um in fact we basically made a batch of the startings of sake so rice and uh koji mixed together with a yeast if anyone doesn't kind of know sake is really interesting uh, in beer we make all the sugar uh, on the brew house side of things and then you pitch the yeast in and ferment the sugar and turn it into alcohol sake is much more of a co-fermentation so koji is a, a type of mold that basically converts starch into sugar um, and at the same time, you have yeast in the same mix. So you've basically got this constantly co-fermenting thing. Really hard to track the alcohol level of sake from a specific gravity point of view because it just goes up and down the, the whole time during fermentation, basically. Um, but, uh, yeah, so it's uh, we've made a batch of sake about three weeks ago now. Um, Chio and I kind of made that together. So steamed rice properly, just like you would for a batch of sake, Um and, and actually use some homemade koji that Chiho makes herself, um, which if you ever want a super complicated process, try making koji at home. You need about uh, 72 hours of intense, um, you know, no sleep kind of work. Uh, it, the, the, the spores and the mold doesn't stop for anyone. But we've basically made a batch of the starting of sake. Um, we'll then blend that in with a, a base beer that we make um and and let kind of the combination work together and it's really interesting you get the driest beer you've ever seen because the koji just takes every last little bit of complex sugar that's in your malt breaks it down into more and more sugar and then the yeast keeps going and ferments so um if we if we fermented it out as a normal beer it'd be around seven percent alcohol rather this beer ends up landing around ten percent in abv but it's not a brute IPA in terms of flavor. There's sort of phrases that we, you know, over the last 149 episodes we've explored. It's not mm. as dry as a brute IPA. Definitely, uh, definitely would be as dry as a brute IPA. What I'd say is koji mold, you know, is a big flavor driver in what makes sake taste like sake. Um, so when you drive 
that kind of breakdown of starch into sugar through a koji spore rather than through an enzyme you get a lot more sake character than what you'd ever get from well you don't get any of that from a brute ipa so in terms of dryness definitely you know brute ipa is kind of a good place to draw from but i you know i'd say it's it's a really difficult drink to describe because there's there's really good elements of sake in it and then there's really good elements of kind of a nice big strong beer and we're not, we you know use hops in in a good way as well to try and give it that kind of back end of bitterness to balance it back out a little bit so it's 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 definitely unique um you know it's it's it sounds amazing not for everyone but it's look i think it's something that not a lot of people are you know it's i'd never say no one's ever doing it because there's definitely someone's always done something in beer before but it's definitely um it's pretty unique um and, and it'll be out in cans and 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 pretty readily available so it's um yeah we're, we're really excited about that and, and we've really been lucky to work with chiho again so um that'll be out in about about four weeks time let's just see how this koji fermentation goes but um yeah four to five weeks we look forward to that we're going to give crofty a couple of questions crofty we you make sure you ask them succinctly brother Okay, um, I, I've been to all of the venues. Um, the restaurants are fantastic. Is, do you know, as operations manager, I know you're more on the brew side. I don't know if you know about the restaurant, but uh, are, they, uh, are they planning on opening other venues like they did the Byron venue? Or? Yeah, I think, I, think, um, I think it probably was definitely being thought about a lot more before COVID. Um, you know, I think it's just everyone's got a their own kind of COVID story, but it's just made um, you know, hospitality a lot more difficult um than, you know, for everyone. You know, like um it's just it's a harder industry now than it has been for quite a long time and and just the struggles with staffing and particularly you know kitchens keeping kitchens kind of manned and things like that at the moment's putting a fair bit of stress probably on kind of everyone in the group around keeping those venues running so i think probably not um not in the next you know not there's no plans in the works you know there's no new venue opening next month or anything like that um but it's definitely you know it's it's not something that's off the cards in the future it's just i think we're all trying to kind of uh, just recover from what the last couple of years have 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 been like for, for people and things like that. So yeah. Yeah, that's awesome because um I I just like to add that the food is amazing. Um, yeah. If you ever go to a Yuli's venue or one of their restaurants, I get the banquet. Just yeah. do it. Yeah, we do a banquet at every every venue and it's just a good good tasting across the board. And uh look at like a without kind of plugging the Yuli's restaurants too much, you know, I think you know the big thing about kind of our all of our venues is it's not you know you don't walk in and it says vegan you know anywhere um you know my, i myself am not a vegan but i think what we do is we make a really good demonstration of how you can do vegan food really well and make really tasty good food and that you don't kind of uh you know need you know anything more than what we're kind of using um and, and that you can do kind of a huge range of styles of fine dining through to if you come to the brewery it's much more kind of pub focused uh food in a lot of ways the, the beers are also very very good yeah <laughs> awesome stuff and, and thank you crofty um if you heard a bit of sound in the background of crofty there it's because it's pouring rain in sydney uh as it always seems to be always spend your time in melbourne rather than sydney if you have the opportunity uh 
Mark from Seaford, uh, another one of our very good friends, chime in with your, I think this is now your traditional question, and I love the fact that you ask it, uh, because it's one of the things that we love talking about here. So far away, brother. Yeah, thanks, Dave. Um, yeah, Tom, yeah, th thanks for putting up with all our stalking and Norwegian gags first up, mate. Um, no, it's been se sensational sessions tonight, mate, and every one of these beers I love, so thank you for um, introducing me to them. No, and anyway, um, yeah, the, the can art and and the branding of the, of the company and so forth, like especially like the uh, the illustrations, like that. A lot of this is hand drawn, I believe. So, can can you sort of elaborate on 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 that? And um, do you use just one artist, and or, or is there a, a few? Anyway, I'll shut up and let you answer. Thanks. <laughs> um, the uh, the artist side of things is interesting and it's something I've learned you know more about Yulies over the years myself you know when I very first started and got involved in Yulies myself I didn't think very much about it um we've, we've been we've had a few artists over the years um so our, a very uh original uh artist was actually a dishy at the restaurant originally as well so funny enough um you know a lot of people who start as dishes at the restaurant seem to end up in parts of the business but um his his name was charlie and um you know he hand drew all of the characters to begin with so you know norman and fat nerd and 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 it's you know very much starts with a hand-drawn process you know um for kind of the graphics designers out there they'll get it much more but for me it was a bit of learning of kind of you know start with the hand drawing and then eventually kind of bring that into you know adobe illustrator so that you can kind of touch things up and and muck around with colors and then actually you know change it from being a drawing of a character to a full-blown can with you know legal requirements and things like that but um yeah I think it's it's been really tough in some ways because obviously you know people are just moving on and you know Ch Charlie for example you know he's uh, a pretty well-known kind of children's book illustrator nowadays um, and so uh, you know he just got very very busy and and Yulis was less of a priority for him um, so we're currently uh, working with a, another artist who used to work at the restaurant as well um, lives in London now but his name's Dom or Dominic um, and he's a really talented artist as well um, I think it takes uh, you know a bit of time to try you know it's so hard imagine coming into a brand that's already got a family of characters and trying to draw in the same way as someone else you know I think it's it's a really tough ask on an artist but he's he's managed to kind of you know capture it really well but at the same time kind of add his own spirit and his own flair and I think we've really enjoyed that part of it as well of being able to kind of you know see a bit of evolution in the characters over time as well um so I guess that's a long and you know long-winded answer to kind of saying uh we don't have one artist but it's it's definitely something that uh both Carl and Harv spend a lot of time you know almost I think probably to the point of frustration sometimes for artists of of really trying to get things kind of right and accurate and and to the same both the same style as as what we have but also you know it's funny, like the more detail you get into, if you look at the eyes of all of our characters, you try and draw, you know, you think about the Mona Lisa or whatever, whenever you try and draw anything by hand and you put eyes on it, it's really hard for it to not look, uh, you know, a bit weird. So I, I think I think there's a lot of challenges there of just, you know, hand-drawn characters in general. And, and I think uh, it's, it's a constant challenge for us, but I think it's it's also kind of what makes Yuli's Brews and what makes, you know, it's so fun to kind of design the characters and, and really work on them. No, no that, that's excellent, mate. You know, there's de definitely like a, a theme there, but as you said, it's different with 
the different artists that they bring to the, the table as well. So, yeah. yeah. I reckon that's a gorgeous place to wrap up the recorded part of the session that we're having tonight. Uh, Tom, you've been so generous with your time and people are saying in the in the chat that we've got here going in the Zoom room, how fantastic it is to have someone who's both been there from the beginning, but has that sort of perspective of joining along the way and not being afraid to say to James, who could have been here on the podcast tonight to defend himself, uh, but chose not to be. You know, you've spoken <laughs> truth to power, brother. We love that. Thank you, David. It's been it's been an excellent time. Thank you so much. Uh, please, if you haven't got the uh, Yulies pack through us, then go and find them wherever you can in whatever part of the world you're in. Uh, we've, as you've heard, we've loved the beers we're having tonight. I'm going to press stop on the record, and then we're just going to sit around and have a good chat here in the Thursday night Zoom room. Uh, come and be part of it if you've not been part of it before. Goodbye to episode 149. We'll see you live in the flesh at Bonehead for episode 150.